Hello and welcome to ZeroNet50. I'm Jennifer Deloney and with me is Joel Strongberg. Hi, Joel. Hi, Jennifer. All right, so we're going to jump in today on a topic that I've watched for the better part of, oh, say, 15 years maybe, and that is the Renewable Portfolio Standard, or what we like to call the RPS. So I saw a few weeks ago Nevada cleared a new state RPS that doubles its previous standard to 50 percent by 2030 so that's a pretty good one and i mean the rps has become a staple of state energy policy uh, across us and and we also see it at the city, city level there's a proposal for a citywide rps in the hopper right now for new, or new orleans so that's pretty cool but the needle has never moved on a federal rps despite really high interest on that topic and I understand that a national RPS is an area where you've been pondering the possibility of it going in a new direction. So tell me what your thoughts are on that. Well, you know, the, the, as we've talked about um, the last um, several months, the, the, the midterm elections in November and um, the discussions about the Green New Deal, the, the youth movements, uh, the, uh, the progressive tilt of some of the uh, newly elected Democratic members of the House has really changed the dynamic um, of the national conversation. It certainly has brought it up to um, kind of eye-popping levels, actually. The, the, um, uh, a poll out last week that was done by uh, the Yale Communications Program in conjunction with George Mason <clears throat> um, showed that, in fact, the, the, the number of voters um, that are speaking now about climate um, as critical to their vote in 2020 um, has, keeps going up. Uh, the, the last number was 40 percent. Mm -hmm. um, now, that's been you know they've had high numbers before, but my feeling has been always been that they're fairly soft because people don't. They say they're interested in climate change and you know that that they recognize that warming isn't good for the world and stuff, but they don't really act on it in, in a political setting. I mean, they go in. Um, and it's not uh, climate is not high on their list when they go to to make their mark on the ballots. <clears throat> well, what we're seeing now is that it is getting high on um, on the list of priorities, and certainly it's going to continue to get um, a lot of talk between uh, now and uh, the 2020 elections. And you know, it's easy to say, well, the Democrats are talking about it, which obviously they are. I don't think that there's uh, any one of the 24 candidates running for the uh, nomination on the Democratic side um, are against doing something for uh, to combat uh, climate change. You know, some of them are certainly a lot more aggressive than others, but but this is now um, a standard fare of being a Democrat. You're in, you're in favor of doing something um, about climate change and making it a priority. To me, the the more telling um, statistic is uh, is the fact that Republicans are now um, saying, "Well, yeah, we have to do something about this," and they're expressing concern about uh, the 2020 elections because of Trump's position on it. Uh, he hasn't he hasn't changed very much, but um, but the party members have, and, and of course, uh, depending on what state they come from, uh, their interest is either higher or lower. Um, Western state uh, politicians tend to um, favor fossil, but even those, uh, John Barrasso, for example, from Wyoming, um, has been in the press a lot, um, speaking about the fact that, I mean, he accepts climate change as an established uh, fact and something needs to be done. So um, what's happening then is that there are a lot of conversations going on now about, okay, something needs to be done. What should be done? 
Um, and you know, this is this this is a gazillion dollar question. Um, and what we're seeing now are um, not only kind of bringing forward the proposals of the last you know several years, uh, uh, carbon tax, for example, um, has been getting a lot of more interest, um, especially once some of the noise on the Green New Deal um, began to has begun to to die down. Um, the, the Green New Deal was kind of a shock to people, but, but by the same token, what's sitting in Congress now, uh, as far as anything written, um, are two resolutions, one in the House, one on the Senate side, um, that say, you know, that it, it's the obligation of the United States to do something about this, but the question of what still kind of hangs out there. And so what we're seeing now is um, some flesh being put on, on bones, if you will. And uh, my last uh, column uh, that was published not only on my site, but uh, uh, resilience.org published it and uh, Stanford Group uh, published it. It's been uh, uh, energy central. Um, the, the article was called Green New Directions. And so what I was suggesting in this article, it's, it's going to be a lead to a series of articles on various proposals. And what I was suggesting to, is to change the, the, the acronym um, GND from Green New Deal to Green New Directions. Um, and the ones that I was going to focus on first, because it's grabbed my interest, um, is in fact a clean energy standard at the national level. Uh, a, a legislation has actually been prepared um, uh, by Senator uh, Smith from Minnesota um, and uh, Ben Ray Lujan from New Mexico. Um, and what it does is it, it's called the Clean Energy Standard Act of 2019. Okay, so what it does is it 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 is is of an RPS kind of activity um, in the sense that it it indicates that um, the, that the uh, the objective of the bill is to be zero carbon um, electric by uh, 2050, 100 percent. OK, mm -hmm. um, and it has an intermediate uh, target of, I think, 80 percent by 2035. So one of the things that it does immediately is it kind of responds to the progressives, to the to the to the Green New Dealers, if you will, because it actually talks about um, a measurable time frame um, in which carbon goes away as far as mm -hmm. uh, as far as it's used, as far as electricity is concerned, not, not go away, but I mean, that the. the what's produced is offset by what's not produced. Okay, mm -hmm. so, you, so you get to zero net 50. Right. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice, um, nice job. <laughs> yeah, you were the one who came up with the title. Um, <laughs> and so, um, so this is now being talked about. And as far as I'm concerned, this is actually the first um, proposal in this, in this kind of beginning onslaught of proposals that I think people are gonna respond to. And one of the reasons they're gonna respond to it is because they're what, Jennifer, in 29 states now that have RPSs, um, mm -hmm. and it accounts for 64% of the electricity produced in the United States. Right. Um, it's also coming at a time when uh, RPS standards in various states, Nevada is one of them, uh, is coming to a close. These things usually set an objective, 20% electricity from renewable sources by you know, uh, 20 whatever, or, or 19 whatever, whatever it is. but mm -hmm. but. But they've they filled their dance card. So number one, a lot of states are now having to look at what do we do next? I mean, do we expand the RPS? Um, did we drop the RPS? Did we accomplish what we wanted to accomplish? Um, and as you said at the beginning, cities are looking at this as well. I mean, this is a, it's a it's a comprehensible 
um, idea of something that I think people not only are familiar with, but they've seen actually has been quite successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what's happening, though, is that things are creeping in uh, at the very early stages of, of the federal dialogue. Um, the, the introduction of, by um, Congressman uh, Ben Ray Lujan and uh, Senator Smith actually kind of coincided with a, a report that was prepared um, out of the University of Chicago's Energy Policy Institute. Um, and it was prepared by Michael Greenstone uh, and uh, Ishan Nath, uh, both from the center. Greenstone is a pretty well um, credentialed uh, economist. In fact, he, he's, his title is the Milton Friedman Distinguished Service Professor in Economics. Now, they had, reduced, they had released a paper that basically concluded that um, RPS standards are a lousy way, or at least an expensive way, let's say, mm, let's okay. say that, yep. an expensive way um, to, to reduce carbon levels. Okay. Mm. Um, which, you know, it's a, maybe a statement, but it's a little bit shocking, actually, in the sense that you know, there's been so much talk about how successful RPSs are in combating climate change. But the other thing, too, is that people have to remember that state RPS standards are not just about um, reducing carbon levels. In fact, in a lot of ways, that's further down the list than, say, uh, creating innovation and technology, encouraging innovation and technology, mm-hmm. or uh, building uh, industrial clusters within within the state. Uh, you know, in, in years gone by, I've lobbied at the state level and at the federal level as well for RPS standards. But most of the time that I approached it, I mean, it was for, it was from uh, an industrial development point of view. And not that the climate wasn't important or that we didn't think that you know that it it bore the the emphasis that it does now. But the fact of the matter is that people were responding, uh, policymakers, lawmakers, communities. Um, to the opportunity to to bring in economic development, which, if people you know think about, it, is is really a mainstay of the Green New Deal, and and presumably a lot of the new conversations that are coming up on these kind of Green New directions. So it comes as it comes as something of a shock. Well, it's probably more of a shock than people might otherwise um, think about it uh, at the surface. There are mm-hmm. three things. The the study uh, concluded three things. One is that because of the intermittency of renewables, that you need more backup capacity. So um, they're, they're introducing into the discussion this kind of reliability argument um, or unreliability, depending on your perspective, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that the Trump administration has been doing. And if you remember, um, we've talked about, you've written, I've written about um, the efforts of uh, Energy Secretary Perry um, mm-hmm. to kind of push um, uneconomic uh, nuclear and coal plants uh, not push them into the market, but keep them in the market beyond the time that that makes any sense. And the argument was national security and reliability and, and this sort of thing. But, but, you know, in this day and age, that's not an issue anymore. I mean, no. batteries and storage and um, multiple sources of, of, of production, The all the studies are basically saying, I mean, even members of the Trump's own administration, I mean, basically said that's a bullshit argument. Um, yeah. To, to, to use the word that the, the president is fond of using. <laughs> of um, okay, so so that's number one, and um, and again, it's just not a good argument. Um, number two, um, they talk about renewable sources taking up a lot of physical space geographically, which may sound somewhat specious as an argument, but it's actually um, 
being talked about, used a lot in in arguments against solar. Uh, an article that I did a, a couple of weeks ago, maybe four or five weeks ago, um, talked about when communities don't want wind and solar um, farms in their neighborhoods, especially rural communities. And one of the arguments they use is it takes up a lot of space. Well, mm-hmm. it does, but I mean, you can use that space for other things as well. I and mean, you can raise cattle under it and what have you. And, and it's not all taken up with equipment. I mean, they just have, uh, you know, clear free zone so the equipment can operate and things. Um, but the authors in the Chicago study also talked about geographic dis- dispersal in the sense that, well, of course, if you're going to have a very dispersed system, you need transmission lines, which is true. But what doesn't need transmission lines in, 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 in a central generating mm-hmm. model? Um, right. I mean, nuclear isn't next to your house. I mean, it's got to get there somehow. Yeah. Um, and so, again, this is kind of a, a whack argument as far as, as rigor is concerned in, in any kind of a research or academic setting. Yeah, um, it doesn't take into account the evolution of our electricity system. So that it's really aggravating. Yeah, it is aggravating. And, and, it's, and they bring it up as if nobody's ever thought about this before or that, right. uh, that these other technologies um, don't have exactly the same problem. Yeah. Um, and the third argument that they bring up is that um, the RPSs um, mandating renewable power um, are actually causing the states um, and, and utilities and what have you to um, prematurely uh, displace functioning, system, functioning fossil systems uh, or nuclear systems with renewables, which also is a specious argument. I mean, mm-hmm. it's... It, it's they're saying that you, the, the, the RPS standards actually select technologies that are not otherwise economic. And mm. I mean, that, that argument barely made it in the 1980s. Right. Um, and so now they're, I mean, they're rehashing it again. And I mean, read your local newspaper, look at the, I mean, look at the stock market. I mean, the, the, the greatest source of new generation these days is renewables. And why mm-hmm. is it the greatest source? Because it's cost competitive. Yeah. Um, so, so what they're doing is you've got, you've got this academic study coming out from a very reputable university um, that says, well, you know, there are other ways to do this. There are better ways to, to talk about carbon, and they never talk about any of these other side benefits. Uh, now, now, to their credit, I mean, they have probably amassed the greatest uh, database on states that, that are using it and what's happened and stuff, but they don't compare states. I mean, New York may do it for one reason and Nevada may do it for another. Um, and, and of course, I mean, each, again, each state's going to do this for different reasons, although they all have kind of a, an integrating function of it's better for the environment, um, than spewing coal, out, uh, coal fumes out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so following the, the University of Chicago argument, um, Bloomberg New Energy came out with an article that suggested that this study maybe isn't as rigorous as it, it is, as it might appear at first. And one of the things that they point out, for example, um, is that it's not peer reviewed. And one of the things that I think that we find in dealing with uh, environmental and energy policy is that when you get on the political side, we're not talking about science. I mean, mm. you can write a paper, I can write a paper that, that says pretty much whatever we want it to say, and you know, mm-hmm. we'll bend the facts to it. Um, and we can put it out there before, um, before it's reviewed by anybody. I mean, there's no obligation, whereas I mean, when we talk about mainstream science, we're talking about peer-reviewed studies. It's mm-hmm. not what you have to say or what I have to say. 
It's about somebody looking at our work and saying, well, is it credible? I mean, um, did, did you do this? Did you not do that? Um, is, is, uh, did the information come originally from a good source? Um, you know, the, the, the deniers can always point out that, you know, these uh, scientific models um, sometimes don't work so well and because there are glitches in them. Mm -hmm. At least somebody's looking at it. And it's not true in the kind of political, social policy side of things. Um, and so the, 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 the Bloomberg article, you know, again, suggested that this is kind of, uh, this is unfortunate this kind of information is coming out. Well, on my side of the aisle uh, here in Washington, it's particularly unfortunate because of legislation like the um, Smith-Ben-Ray-Lujan bill um, that is now going to get a different kind of hearing than if it came out in a, um, uh, in a research neutral setting, if, if you will. Mm -hmm. And one of, one of the reasons that I bring this up is because after um, coming across this information, I actually started to do um, a quick survey. There's nothing scientific about it. And I mean, it was, you know, the, my finger clicked on things that I thought might be interesting. But as it turns out, I mean, I found at least a dozen articles um, in various newspapers that talked about um, RPS standards being a failure. Okay, hmm. so that's, um, you know, it's what people can say about it. But you dig a little deeper and what happens is that the University of Chicago Center, the, the energy center that, that the authors work for, um, is actually funded in part by the Hartman Institute. Right. Um, and you start looking at these other um, sources of capital. And what's happening is that the denier organizations that have never been particularly open in the first place, um, or transparent in the sense of you know, who's doing what, are actually moving into academia. Um, the University of Chicago is not the only uh, institution supported by um, denier, traditionally denier organizations. Uh, George Mason has a center that doesn't get talked a lot about. Um, that's not the communications program that, that does all these studies and, and works to, uh, re, uh, re, and Republican, I think, that, that, that really kind of focuses on uh, moderate Republicans and how to get them engaged in the argument. This other center is actually paid for by the Koch brothers. Um, and so what's going to happen and what I would, what I worry about is that now that we've got a conversation, we've got interest from people, we've got interest from politicians, we've got hopefully a, a, a situation where not only are people saying this is a problem, but they're willing to listen to what some other solutions might be. Um, and instead of politicizing everything, um, the... There's a there's a chance that that needs to actually be taken up on um, that conversation public conversations um, need to happen about what do we want to do what is it that we're trying to accomplish um, when we talk about uh, doing something about climate change about about energy and environment you know I've been in this business for I don't know 35 40 years in all that time I have never seen a national integrated energy environment um, mm. plan. I mean, so mm -hmm. that I've, I've seen proposed solutions, but, and in their way, I suppose they, they solve things. But the fact of the matter is that you do this on an ad hoc basis, and what's gonna happen is that, and not only is it inefficient, I mean, it's horribly inefficient, right. but, but you end up not only paying attention to special interests, but special interests that actually can conflict with each other. So you get a policy that goes off in one direction, that's checked by another one. And, and we have to be able to, at some point, sit down as a nation 
and say, okay, what is it that we want to do? Yeah, we want to we want a habitable environment. Well, okay, what are you willing to pay for that? I mean, um, are you willing to shift defense monies over? Are you do you see this as an investment? I mean, RPS standards have been, among other things, again, so successful because of these multiple benefits that they have. So people, mm-hmm. I mean, in a sense that even though electricity went up, you know, X percent, um, it was worth it to the state because, because of its net benefits to the state in tax, in, in, in tax revenues and new jobs and in, in all these other things. And so what has to happen, I think now, and we have to begin thinking about it um, now and not six months from now, is that the people have to be aware of what's kind of going on behind the scene in various places. Now, I, I, I don't know that, I mean, I'm not going to say that all the stuff that, um, that Greenstone came out with um, in the report uh, is bullshit. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of it probably isn't. But the fact of the matter is that we're only getting half the story. Right. And, and so what's going to happen is that this conversation is going to get rapidly tilted and it's going to get tilted in a way that deniers i mean it used to be a binary thing you either were or you weren't um I mean, you, you either defended the environment or you denied the science mm-hmm. well now what's happening is the deniers are saying well yeah it's true i mean we we recognize that now I mean, we've seen the light it's catharsis for us right. um, except for the fact that now they're introducing old concepts um and they're twisting the information. The, another piece of legislation that came up last week was proposed by Tom Reed, and it's a, it's a tax incentive, a tax credit um, that he says is technology neutral, that um, compensates for all the um, misguided directedness of uh, credits for renewables uh, because, it, because it, it doesn't choose technologies ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's talking about innovation. I mean, he talks about innovation in mixed metaphors. He says that you know we 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 shouldn't be directing um, our tax credit dollars to uh, renewables because that's forcing the market. But it's okay to do it for nuclear, and it's okay to keep the fossil ones going. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about carbon sequestration that would be eligible for the credit, um, although the details are a little fuzzy on that. And that's another issue that has to come up in this. Is Carbon capture is, is an important issue, um, and as is nuclear, I think, in, this con- in, in these conversations going forward. Um, is it worth the risk and the cost of these kinds of technologies to be able to capture um, enough carbon that we can, in fact, meet the goals of, not of Paris, but of, of what science is telling us is way beyond Paris. I mean, we mm-hmm. if we're going to keep it below a certain level, then... We've got to get hopping on it, whether it's in 12 years or 20 years, it doesn't make any difference. We have to get hopping on it. The question is, what are you willing to pay for that? Now, mm-hmm. now you're not going to get to, even the UN says you can't get there just by using renewables. Um, and if you can't get there by using renewables, then what are your choices? Uh, your choices are shrinking your economy is one choice. Another choice could be um, actually working on getting nuclear straightened out. I mean, the, the tech... There are technological innovations, um, although sometimes despite those innovations, you get into problems of transporting nuclear waste and what do you do with the stuff that you have. Carbon capture can be very, very expensive, but compare it to what? Um, and, and again, what happens is that they're going back to, well, you know, we're going to innovate our way out of 
out of this problem. Um, right. it's, it's a lot of deniers to say. And I, that too has been something that, I mean, it's been talked about for 50 years. And at one level, it's true. I mean, we've got, we've got solar and wind, among mm -hmm. other things, to prove it. But they're not, they're not, they're not bridging the argument, number one. So it's what, what they're doing is, I mean, they're so tilting the table um, that I worry about an opportunity like RPS where citizens are very comfortable with it, a lot of states are comfortable with it, yep. where it lasts, it's a new direction. I'm, I'm, if I hear one more Green New Deal and um, price, you know, and carbon pricing um, as the only, the only way about it, I, I'm gonna scream. I mean, because right. the fact of the matter is that it's, 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 it's not a sufficiently wide conversation. Um, and we need a sufficiently wide conversation. Are you sorry you asked me now? <laughs> Never, ever sorry I ask. <laughs> well, I think it's a perfect opportunity, speaking of the the RPS, and, and it's, it's w well used in the U.S. We, uh, we saw the um, governor of Washington, Jay Inslee, Earlier this month, he signed a package of bills into law that are meant to improve the state's environment. And among the bills was the big news that the state will transform its electricity system and go 100% clean electricity by 2045. So, you know, going 100% clean electricity has there's been a campaign for cities and states for a while now. So it's not the biggest news coming out of the state, but it's still great news. And the RPS is, is well used. Uh, but they, they had this whole package of laws, uh, and another one works to accelerate the electri electrification of the state's transportation sector. So that's, you know, another key element that, you know, like you're saying, we need more than just the Green New Deal and, this, uh, and the carbon tax. Uh, there's also energy efficiency. They have a law um, that has a new program for the state, and it sets aggressive new standards for commercial buildings and standards and design requirements uh, for efficiency products like lighting and computers. Um, but the law that I think the, is the most intriguing of the whole group and likely didn't grab as many big headlines as the 100% clean energy law focuses on the use of hydrofluorocarbons or HFCs. They're also called super pollutants because they have a much higher global warming potential that GWP uh, than carbon. <clears throat> and essentially, under the law, over a series of target dates, products that now use HFCs will have to transition to a climate-friendly alternative in order to be part of Washington's economy. So I just want to give a quick overview of those dates and the categories, just so you get a feeling for what this market looks like. So starting next year, Propellants, supermarket systems, remote condensing units, standalone units, and vending machines will come into effect. Starting in 2021, refrigerated food, food processing and dispensing equipment, compact residential consumer refrigeration products, certain extruded board stocks and billets, and certain spray foams. And then starting in 2022, other residential consumer refrigeration products that are not compact or built in. In 2023, they affects cold storage warehouses. In 2024, centrifugal chiller and positive displacement chillers. Uh, and then anything that's not specified also goes into effect in 2020. So uh, the law sets up 
violations um, for the, like a fine of ten thousand dollars for a or a year in jail for product provisions that have been mentioned, and then. Uh, by the end of 2020, the Department of Ecology will prepare a report on how to support development of refrigerants, and uh, they have to have this low global warming potential, and also how to reduce the use of HFCs. And that's all of that is, is it, it's a big mouthful, but it's a really nice step to put those provisions into law. Uh, and I think it's really important to take all that and then give it a little bit of context. So, first of all, Washington joins only one other state to go this far on HFCs. And that of state is, of course, none other than California. And that becomes even more significant when you understand that the global community joined together in 2016 under one agreement called the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol. And that it's a phase out of HFCs. And the amendment came into force at the start of this year, and those countries that signed it agreed to ratify their commitments. The US was among the countries to sign it, and that was under the Obama administration. But what do we know about Trump and Obama aero policy? He wants to destroy it. So to date, there has been no movement to ratify the US commitment to the Kigali Amendment. And Trump says, just like with the Paris Agreement, it's a bad economic deal for the US. It's likely he's parroting the constituents that matter to him. Their position can be seen, for example, in information disseminated by the Heritage Group. The group says the amendment to the Montreal Protocol was likely driven more by concerns about HFCs and global warming than the potential of HFCs to damage the ozone layer. And that's what the Montreal Protocol was originally sworn to protect, right? And right. so you, you see that nice fallacy there. But the Montreal Protocol uh, originally went after CFCs or chlorofluorocarbons. And indeed, at the time the Kigali Agreement was signed, Obama touted the savings in terms of global warming, saying that achieving the goals of the amendment would avoid up to half a degree Celsius of warming by the end of the century. And remember, this statement came less than a year after the signing of the Paris Agreement. So uh, Obama said the amendment would make a significant contribution to the Paris Agreement. And therefore, it's no wonder that Trump is leery of being seen to support a goal of the Montreal Protocol, given his position on the Paris Agreement. So go ahead. Oh, as you said, I mean, and my understanding is that that actually changed. That early in the administration, um, the Kigali uh, uh, Amendment was one of the few um, climate-related initiatives that the, that the Trump administration was actually considering um, to continue, uh, as compared to the Paris Agreement. And you know, and what happened is that you're right. I mean, somebody in his core groups um, got on his case saying you can't do that. that right. It's, um, and uh, it's unfortunate that, I mean, again, this is kind of a, a question of um, the content of the, of, the, of the argument and the importance of the, uh, of the restrictions um, are now giving way to what? I mean, party politics, to, yep. to a label that has nothing to do with anything other than um, somebody's very, very self-interest. Yeah, absolutely. A, a complete fallacy. And it, it makes me a little crazy when I see it in black and white. Uh, 
but the Heritage Foundation goes further in its concerns uh, as with it as it does with many environmental transitions, uh, and they focus on the cost of climate-friendly refrigerants, and they say uh, that cost will increase uh, the cost of products for, of course, American consumers. But given the latest tariff news on Chinese products, worrying about the increased cost to American consumers seems like a complete non-issue for this administration. Uh, but that aside, there also is the concern over a decrease in the availability of choice in the refrigerant market, which is always a, you know, a good tagline for people uh, consumer choice. We want to have our full fat yogurt and our 2% yogurt and our 0% yogurt. Uh, but there also are those who, who would be Trump supporters on most fronts that are in support of ratifying the Kigali Agreement in the U.S. Representatives of the refrigerant industry say that there are huge benefits to the U.S. in that ratification. It would build up a market of exports that would translate into an industry that's worth billions of dollars. There also is an opportunity loss. Products from the U.S. where the amendment isn't ratified could be barred on the international market, and, and that's a, a big no-no. There have been industry reports that point to a transition that can be accomplished without increasing cost to consumers. Um, but on the world stage, we see that the progress on the HFC phase down really continues. Armenia this month became the 71st country to ratify the Kigali Agreement, so that's significant progress there. And the markets keep pushing forward toward fulfilling these carbon-friendly alternatives uh, uh, that are you know, coming out uh, as a result of the laws. And Mitsubishi Heavy Industries just released a prototype residential air conditioner that uses what they call R454C, which is a mixed refrigerant with a low global warming potential. And they plan to go ahead with this mass production starting with the European market because that's where the phase down is well underway. Uh, there's just, you know, just like these points, there's so much more to follow and understand about HFCs in the U.S., across the world. Uh, but I just want to wrap it up by pointing uh, pointing to um, this proposed rule, and I think our listeners should check it out. It's the it's got a long name. <laughs> I'm gonna ramble it off anyway. Uh, the safer, affordable, fuel efficient vehicles rule for model year 2012 through 2026 passenger cars and light trucks. Whew. So it was issued by the EPA and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. And apparently, as part of that proposed rule, the Trump administration wanted to eliminate emissions credits for car manufacturers that use climate-friendly refrigerants, which would, would be, you know, a really big step right. backwards. And companies like Honeywell that have put a lot of money into developing alternative refrigerants for those car manufacturers to use got really nervous about that potential rollback. And they told the EPA in comments that they've sunk billions into new refrigerant technologies and rolling back the credits likely is going to encourage manufacturers to continue using HFCs. So uh, I would just jeopardize this new market for refrigerants uh, that those developers have been anticipating. 
there is there's some indication that the Trump administration might take those concerns to heart. Uh, there was an extended common period for the proposed rule that ended last October, and now we're just waiting for the final rule, and that could come out any time now, but it's likely that those credits will, will stay in place and won't be removed. Um, but, you know, really as a long-time trained news editor, I'm just deeply fascinated by any conversation about industries that are in jeopardy, that are growing, that are competing within itself. And we have all that going on with refrigerants. And that conversation duplicates itself across any industry that is affected by climate well, issues. I mean, yeah. that's, that's exactly right. I mean, just a couple of footnotes to, to, yep. to what you're saying. Is, mm -hmm. First of all, I mean, you've just described basically what I was talking about. I mean, the, yeah. the fact of the matter is that, that there's a tilt to the dialogue that, that is obviously self-serving. But you've also, you've, that model, that pattern is exactly what happened, what, what is happening as far as um, auto emissions are, yep. are concerned. Yep. Um, and so one of the things that doesn't happen by this administration, I mean, not only do they pick the position on, uh, as a matter of doctrine, but they don't talk about the fact that um, it does put U.S. industry at a competitive disadvantage that, yeah. um, I mean, you can close markets off to it. And especially when, when, when countries that were once your friends begin to resent um, who you are, they're going to start imposing uh, reverse tariffs just, just, just to get even. Um, yeah. And it's also one of the reasons, uh, you know, it's interesting. We've spoken before about uh, the fact in the, in the auto emission standards that um, California is able to do something uh, that other states can't. They can set yeah. it more strident. Um, and so there's been talk, uh, there are rumors coming out of California that um, the California regulators are in fact going to put in place a very, very strict emission standard. And why is this important? Because what happens is that nobody wants to, wants to really produce the two different markets or right. 50 different markets or what have yeah, you. Exactly. So, so, so what happens then is the state of California can actually drives the entire dialogue, um, assuming that I mean, it's, it's the reason that, that the Trump administration wants to take away their exception. And the waiver is not guaranteed. It's something that can be decided on. It's going to end up in the courts. But the fact of the matter is the same arguments have been going on. And as far as cost is concerned, too, the auto companies in the United States, they wanted, they wanted um, flexibility in meeting the Obama rules. Um, mm -hmm. They did not want um, the, the regulation frozen for just the same reasons that you talked about. They've already invested um, in the technologies. Right. Um, and so it's, it's, it's an applications question, number one. And number two, it, it's going to threaten their, I mean, if the United States doesn't produce cars that uh, meet the German standard, they can't sell cars in Germany. Um, right. And so this is what, I mean, it, it's kind of a, a constant feedback loop. This, this is what I worry about um, as far as the, the conversation now going forward on the, on the, on the bigger climate thing is that, <laughs> this model just keeps repeating itself, repeating itself, repeating itself, repeating itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. all you have to do is change the industry name or, or, or the institution's name that came out with, with, with data that um, nobody is allowed to peer review. Yeah. Um, and so this is the time to, I mean, at some point, we have to step up and stop this because, uh, I mean, not only is it is a bad policy, but um, with, with, the sixth great extinction going on and, and, the, and the health and political 
uh, consequences of, of climate change, um, we can't really afford to repeat this uh, model very often because if we do, um, there's no going back. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it just makes me think about, you know, what the impetus was for Washington, you know, as as the only the second state to have a policy on HFCs like this that's this strong that creates its own economy. It's like, you know, they they have to see something down the line that that others are probably like, okay, yeah, we agree. This is where we have to go. And I think we're going to see other states just start falling like dominoes on that respect. Well, we, we have to hope so, because what happens is that when, when only one or two states do this, um, it takes a lot of guts because they, I mean, they run the risk of freezing themselves out of a market. Um, yeah, this is a domestic market. And yep. so again, I think one of the things that we're seeing, um, whether it's the RPS or, or, or uh, the fluorocarbons, what have you, is that um, some people look at these things as a way to progress. Mm-hmm. Others look at it as maintaining a status quo that they're at, uh, of a system that they're at the top of. And, right. and so what we're seeing is that it's often easier, often easier, not always, often, sometimes, um, easier to do this from the bottom up than it is the top down. As far as, mm-hmm. as far as, where you're doing it. I mean, you know, yeah. town, city. The problem with this ends up being that at some point you can't have state and city uh, or even regional governments all being of one mind and the federal government not only not being of that mind, but being, uh, being opposed to it to the mm-hmm. point that they can make the system not work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think our listeners should keep an eye on you know, not just the refrigerants and the RPSs, but, you know, just listening to the undertones of this conversation and trying to broaden their perspective across the board on industries and on policy. Uh, so that that's what my wish is for our listeners today. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good wish. Um, yes, absolutely. And, uh, um, and I think it's, I mean, I think it's up to all of us to keep that conversation going. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, keeping the conversation going, I am interested in what's coming up for you. Well, actually, um, I'm I'm kind of I've kind of immersing myself in, in this line. Um, the 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 Green New Directions article was was kind of the introduction to what I'm. It's going to be a series um, on various proposals, and the two that I'm going to follow up uh, the last week's article with first I'm going to be writing this week about um, the clean energy standard um, and second uh, Governor Inslee's I'm very I've been taken by Inslee's um, sophistication and understanding uh, in this I mean in a sense he's doing what the Green New Dealers promised to do and he's, mm-hmm. he's recently released his platform um, when I wrote the article last week um, it was just in the process of being released, and he's doing this on a, you know, in a, in a series. So I'll be writing about him second, and over uh, over the next six months, I'm going to write about as many of these things um, as I can, focus on, on on what you were talking about. What are the undertones in these things? Not mm-hmm. just not just what are they, but what's causing them to happen. And as I say in in, in the article last week, that um, I want if I had a wish. My wish is that people would look at these proposals and judge them on their content um, and not the affiliation of their 
of their authors. Um, mm -hmm. I think that if we can do that, we might actually get through this together um, in, in, not you and me, I mean, <laughs> the world. <laughs> all in, of us. <laughs> yeah, right, all of us, um, the big all, um, in, in some kind of reasonable way. And, and I think that uh, uh, if we can contribute to that, that's great. And I know that I speak for you when I say I, the more people respond to us um, with their thoughts, mm -hmm. um, the, the easier it is for us to be able to be responsive. Um, and, you know, we don't, we're, we, we don't claim to, to know it all. And um, I, really, I really value, as I know you do, um, people saying what's on their minds and, and their proposals for new directions as well. Absolutely. Well, on that note, uh, let's just wrap it up and tell our listeners if they uh, want to tweet us questions or comments, they can send that up, them out to hashtag ZeroNet50. And thank you, Joel, for this rousing conversation today. It was really interesting. Thank you, Jennifer. Of course. Uh, and everybody just have a great day. Thank you for listening.